thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Back Chat, exploring the five pillars of health, thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also your neurology with Dr. Paul Bogamo. Welcome to Back Chat. My name is Paul Bergamo, and it's great to be here on our next podcast. Back Chat is about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also in your neurology. Today's Back Chat will cover the pillar of thinking, and I think give great hope to those who are suffering from blood cancers. Today, my special guest on Back Chat is Professor Miles Prince. Professor Prince is the, is the Professor Director of Molecular Oncology and Cancer Immunology at Epworth Healthcare and is also the Director for the Centre for Blood Cell Therapies at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. He describes himself as a translational res- researcher looking for new therapies in the treatment of cancer, particularly in the way the immune system battles cancer. He holds numerous national and international grants, has been awarded an Order of Australia for this work, and it's been published in over 400 manuscripts. Hi, Miles. How are you going? I'm very well, thanks, Paul. Excellent. Well, congratulations on that very decorated career. And I think that, that, that gets to 30 years when, since you graduated in 87. Is that correct? Yes. I think if you do, yes, the, the calculations are sadly correct. There you go. I mean, just as a brief intro to our listeners from Backcheck, can you give us a bit of a rundown in your career, a bit more detail where it started, some of the travels. Just give us a bit of an intro- introduction as to how you've, where you've got to today. We've sort of described the end point. What about some of the uh, points leading up to you to this point? Yeah, so look, I'm, um, I, I did pretty standard training as, as a doctor. I, I, I trained at uh, uh, the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne and did my residency and then registrar and then uh, did some work at the Austin. Uh, decided to, be, to follow the line of haematology, looking at blood. Uh, and got an interest in blood clotting, but then particularly uh, blood cancers. Uh, finished my training, uh, which is a combination of uh, laboratory sort of diagnostic haematology and, and clinical work at, in Sydney, and then headed off to Toronto, where I was really, I went there really interested in um, bone marrow transplants, but um, I met a, a, a charismatic, charismatic character, Keith Stewart, who's now currently head of uh, what I do, um, uh, genomic medicine at, at the Mayo, but in Canada he he taught me all about immunology and an introduction into gene therapy. I uh, did um, some research into that area uh, and uh, came back to Melbourne and worked at Peter Mac uh, and was at Peter Mac head of haematology for quite some years and um, now I'm um, in Ep- at Epworth and also still at Peter Mac doing a, a, a fair bit of research there in uh, in clinical research and laboratory research. So, Miles, that sort of gene therapy, did you bring that from Canada back to Australia or in Australia were people doing that work already? No, nobody was doing it. It's uh, it's now a long time ago. We're talking about 1996. But this was really this that time um, was uh, when we just were discovering how the immune system recognises cancers. And we were learning that we could actually insert genes into uh, into um, cells and modify them. And it's it, it it's only in the last two weeks that the f- a formal gene therapy uh, in the United States was approved as a as a a living drug therapy. Uh, just two weeks ago, 
uh, for the treatment of acute leukemias. And that was been that's been part of our work uh, in that area uh, during that time. So uh, yeah, we've been following the field. It's it's been a you know your classic overnight success uh, since '96, so 20 years in in the making. Yes. Wow, that's amazing. Now, if I track a bit in your career, initially you looked to perhaps do surgery. Wasn't that one of your initial goals? And then was it in your thinking to look at the relationship perhaps with the patient, how that often is a brief encounter uh, versus, say, the work you, you do now with blood cancer type work where you have ongoing relationships, relationships with patients? Is that an accurate description of some, your thinking back then and, yeah, and now? It's very – look – it, it summarises it well. I mean, I, I mean, do, being a doctor is like any profession. There's variations on the theme, and um, you know, I discovered that you know, doing some surgical training uh, very early on, you know, as a as a medical student, and then early on in, in my residency, that um, it was a it was an important thing. It was uh, one. I, I'm not a very good with my hands in terms of my sister's a surgeon. Uh, I can barely tie my shoelaces, um, but that. But it was the aspect of then working in in um, medical areas such as blood cancers or, or hemat and hematology, that so you get a quite a close relationship with your patients. But also, you start to think about what is causing the disease. Why are why are they responding? Why are they not responding? And I suppose those two aspects that. The, the, the having the long-term relationship with the patient rather than a sort of a, a speed date relationship um, and also trying to get a deeper understanding of, of what, what's going well with treatment and then why doesn't the treatment work and what are the new treatments. And the beauty about blood is that we've got access to it so we can be researching it all the time. Look, it's interesting because surgery is something which is really end and final in that sense, isn't it? Whereas I suppose the work you're doing, and especially using the term genomic medicine, that's really yeah. coming back to the back to I suppose the cell and early stages of uh, progression of disease. Can you just explain what is genomic medicine for our lay listeners on Backchat? Yeah, sure. So the concept is that within a cancerous cell, whatever that might be, um, the normal genetic material is disrupted. It's mutated, usually spontaneously. It can be mutated because of external insults such as skin cancers from sun exposure uh, or from lung cancers from cigarette smoke. But often you get these spontaneous mutations. And so the best way to think of a cell really is a bit like a computer. And what happens is that in cancer, that hard drive gets corrupted. And so in, uh, in that hard drive of, of the cell, is what we describe as all the genetic material, these series of, of really what is a barcode, these chemicals that are joined together in a string that make up the specific genes. And from that huge amount of genetic material, we have about fifteen to 20,000 important genes that decide the colour of our hair, uh, how tall we're going to be, how big our nose is, uh, but also um, there's what happens is that they have important chemical uh, genetic uh, activity depending on what organ is. Because the genetic activity in, a, in, in the bowel is different to the brain, is different to the heart. What happens in cancers is a lot of that gets screwed up. So the area, since the um, Human Genome Project, where we we're actually able to 
determine every gene in the body, every amino acid that made up the genetic material. We can now work out what the temp now know what the template is, and then put on top of it an abnormal cell and work out where it's mutated. So it's like putting you know a um, it's like putting a negative over the photo, trying to match the two together, and we can see where the abnormalities are. So now we can look at tumors regularly and say this is this has mutation X, Y, and Z. Wow. Okay. Very specifically, look from your experience, we've seen so many patients who are presented to you, and do you see some common overlaps with lifestyle conditions precipitating people bringing on these oncogenes and? and blood cancer type presentations. I mean, we often hear of patients, for instance, say, Jesus, they're, they're suddenly a lot more stressed, and then before you know it, they've there's a cancer that may have expressed. I mean, anecdotally, have you have you noticed a relation with that, do you, do you find, from your experience? Look, it's, um, it's a very good question. It's really hard to pinpoint uh, those issues around um, uh, stress, um, the immune system, uh, exercise, uh, eating, a lot of them interact. And uh, there is no question that the immune system is critical in controlling disease in many ways and cancer being one of them. The, the difficulty is, is that uh, the immune system is so broad, so complex, it's hard to tease out what modification one makes in in can make in that. So we know that uh, exercise is really important in boosting aspects of the immune system. Uh, there's lots of anecdotes where people have had things like lymphoma, had a very sedentary lifestyle, and then increased the amount of activity that they'd done uh, and had a, a, a remission, uh, boosting their immune system through exercise. The flip side is harder. You know, if people who are inactive, does that predispose? Well, the problem is is that, you know, we know, for example, if you get sleep deprivation, you suppress the immune system. But if you're sleep deprived, you also do less exercise. You might not eat as well. So it's hard to tease all of these things out. Uh, suffice to say that um, there's no doubt that those things are important. The difficulty we have really is giving good advice how to modulate those to improve the immune system. When we come back to sort of looking at genomic medicine and how it relates to cancer therapy, can you describe that relationship? Yeah, so what happens really is that uh, when we look at the old-fashioned way of looking down at a cancer, say, for example, a lung cancer, uh, you could, you'd look down the microscope and you'd say that it was this subtype, that subtype. We now know that if we can look at the true barcode, the mutations that are there, that there's many different types of lung cancer. There's many different types of lymphoma and leukemia, which are, which can actually look identical down the microscope, but the mutations, the abnormalities, what is making that cell turn over is genetically very different. And so the, the importance of this genomic medicine is that, one, it can help us get a better diagnosis. Sometimes we can find tumours where we don't actually know where it's come from. But once we start looking at what genes are screwed up, we can say, ah, that's actually got the profile of a lung cancer or a melanoma uh, or, or a lymphoma. So it can be helpful in diagnosis. 
The second is, is that there are drugs that can fix some of these mutations, bypass them. So the classic drugs are in melanoma, and we've now got some in leukemia and lymphoma. So drugs that uh, inhibit certain mutations, there's a classic mutation in melanoma called BRAF, and there are drugs that can specifically fix it. But BRAF mutations can be seen in other cancers that are not melanoma, and we can use those drugs. And, and lastly, it's going to be an incredibly powerful way for us to monitor the success of our treatment. Because in the bloodstream, some of these mutations, this DNA spills into the bloodstream out of the cancer, a bit like what I call space junk, moves around the bloodstream. And we can start to pick up these mutations in the blood. And if we can pick them up, we can say, well, actually, we failed to eradicate the, that cancer. We need to use more treatment. Or alternatively, we might be following the patient, you know, months or years down the track with a blood test and then start to see these mutations reappear, indicating that the cancer is coming back. And so our hope is that they actually may be better and more sensitive than, for example, scanning a patient. So it seems like that will give you more data in order to make an earlier diagnosis or to see whether things are perhaps re re uh, reoccurring is... Correct. Yeah, it's it gets it's a much more sensitive. Interesting. Now, if we look at the traditional model of uh, cancer therapy, which I suppose is chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and/or surgery, how is this new area of genomic medicine going to potentially change the face of cancer management, especially I suppose with chemotherapy? Yeah. So, look, uh, I was I was preparing a talk the other day, and I just I wanted to create that image, and in fact, I went to the web and I found a picture which basically was a coliseum. And it looked at the pillars, as you described. And in fact, the pillars, they described five pillars, which is exactly how we think of it, which is chemotherapy, surgery, radiotherapy. But the additional pillars are immunotherapy, using the immune system, what we were just talking about. And the last was this uh, precision medicine, um, being very specific about what that tumour is. So it's going to work in concert with the other treatments. We're not going to ever get rid of surgery. We're not really ever going to get rid of radiotherapy because they're so powerful and they can cure cancers, particularly when picked up early. I mean, the um, uh, a major advance has been the cures of breast cancer with the use of chemotherapy and radiation treatment. What will happen is that we'll be able to take those tumours and say, this is this mutation, it has mutation X, Y, and Z, and we will be able to develop drugs um, that will be able to replace uh, the chemotherapy in those situations. So it seems like, you know, we, we often talk about in practice having a toolkit and a wide toolkit of different things and applications we do in practice, even just from a chiropractic neuromusculoskeletal perspective. Is that sort of the same sort of thinking, adding this layer of genomic medicine as a fifth pillar that will give uh, patients with their doctors other options and then over time, as you understand more about particular cancers, it might be a situation we might move to, say, in certain cases, more genomic-type management versus in addition to, say, radiotherapy. Is that sort of the, the, the gist of it in, in lay terms? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, not every tool will fix every situation. Um, genomic medicine is not the ultimate answer for everything. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. We have to work out 
what where genomics is going to be particularly helpful with. So, for example, today there is I use genomics to make better diagnoses of some lymphomas, and um, it's very helpful in, in being and and for me to confirm my diagnosis of a particular type. But I can't have a drug that will target that specific mutation. Um, I, I will have to look in that toolbox for other ways of getting around it. Okay. Now, you mentioned a term precision medicine. Can you yeah. explain that? Because that's something which I don't think a lot of people maybe would understand. What, what does that exactly mean? Yeah. So, look, the terms that are used commonly in this area are what's called personalised medicine, precision medicine and individualised medicine. And ultimately, the commonality of, of those is that we're trying to match the treatment to the, to the specific condition in that individual. Now, personalised medicine is, is broader in that it is, is also got the connotation of taking into account both the physical and the emotional, the mental, the psychological, the sociological aspects of the patient and their illness. Mm -hmm. Precision medicine is much more about saying, well, look, you have a genomic or genetic problem and I'm going to provide a drug or a treatment that's very specific for that. And then the individualized medicine is an extension of that. So precision medicine is, is really saying, I've got a patient, I do a biopsy, I do the genetic testing on it, it tells me that it's got abnormalities A, B and C, and I've got a drug, I've got drugs that I can get off the shelf that will specifically be able to treat it. And um, so it's more about the specific um, uh, matching of the treatment with the disease. So in the context of, say, chemotherapy, is that considered a non-precise medicine in some ways? Because it is, and, and again, I'm, I'm out of my depth here, my expertise, so I need you to help me out here, but you know, is it it's more of a generalised type um, approach to to kill cells associated with cancer versus something which, which is more precise and thereby, I suppose, comes with many side effects sometimes for patients uh, accordingly. Can you help just uh, back chat yeah, us through that? That's exactly right. The um, You're making me smile here because when we thought that the concept of chemotherapy being an imprecise medicine is, is, is true. It doesn't mean it's ineffective. Um, but it is the problem with chemotherapy is ultimately it's a poison. So cells, there will be innocent bystanders that are damaged in the process. Precision medicine, too, can have side effects. It is targeting that specific mutations, but sometimes other cellular pathways in other cells can be damaged along the way. But we talked a little bit about how we can use the immune system to fight cancers. So Boosting the immune system is now a real way of treating disease. We've got drugs out there that are really turbocharging the immune system. Although they can be very effective, they are an imprecise treatment um, because they are more broadly stimulating the immune system. And that too can have a side effects, overactivity of the immune system causing inflammation or autoimmune diseases. So that's an imprecise medicine, yet it's very, very effective. I suppose we've got to weigh up safety versus efficacy in all these sort of approaches. Is that is that the process? Uh, look, I think that's a very sobering point because, you know, right now there's a lot of excitement and we don't want to 
we, we have to look at and take step by step and look at, you know, if we, if we push things too hard um, with um, some of these uh, very uh, targeted therapies that can block important pathways in the cell, um, we may actually do much broader damage uh, if we're not careful. Similarly, if we over overstimulate the immune system, we can run into toxicities. Now, you mentioned earlier about personalised medicine and sort of being an approach being fairly holistic, I suppose, is an, is maybe it will be another term to describe that. Why do you think that's sort of grown in focus recently? Uh, well, I think it's I think it's a recognition that um, uh, a patient or a person has a journey that's taken them to develop that particular illness. And I think if we're really going to understand um, what causes disease, we are going to have to spend more time looking at the whole person. And, you know, one of the one of the really interesting aspects of, you know, genetics and genomics is that, you know, I, I use the analogy of the computer and the hardware. Well, within the cell, there's also a software, things that switch on genes and switch them off. These are chemical reactions that switch on these genes. Um, and um, those chemical reactions are important. They are simple chemical reactions um, like... Um, uh, what, what are called acetylation and, and methylation, they, they change the, d the DNA. And you know what? They, are, they are, can be passed on and they can be inherited. So that's why we think that the humans uh, uh, and animals are, are evolving quicker than we think because it's not just about mutations in the genes. It's about what we call the epigenome. So the epigenome will be influenced by smoking. So if you can imagine a farmer who gets exposed to pesticides at the age of 17, that will affect his software, his epigenome, what switches the genes on and off. He then will, that will be imprinted and then he will pass that on, that information on to his child. So any events that can occur that, are, that, that will be influenced by uh, a parent can, before they um, have their children can be passed on. So really, if we're going to look at what causes diseases and really get down to the individual and what's happened, we actually have to look at not only the individual, but, you know, go back and what's uh, what's happened to them um, and, and, and the environment in which their parents grew up and maybe even their parents' parents. It's interesting because in our previous podcast release, we interviewed a, a gentleman by Dr. Bruce Lipton who does a lot of work with epigenetics. I'm not yes. sure if you've heard of Bruce or know of Bruce. Yeah, I know. Yes, yes. Yep. So, and he talked about those sort of behavioural components, I suppose, affecting genetics and and relationships like that. So it's it's and that and that sort of tailors it a bit towards the um, holistic sort of approach, I suppose, in some ways. And I mean, do you think over your thirty years, do you think that that area now is starting to open up a lot more now versus say? 20 years ago when when we really it was more just the person's got this disease this is the treatment move on next person come in sort of scenario is it is it really evolved now and you know maybe as influences like the Olivia Newton John Center where we look at things that support her work to sort of get that message out talking about mindfulness and other components can you give us a, a bit of an overall sort of look at the yeah. how it's all shaped and changed so it's a big question. It's a critic. No, well, look, it's critically important. I think that you know, it's we have an opportunity here to 
address that. The, the issue is going to be, do we have the resources and time to put that information in to get some answers? So you sort of focused on, you know, the mindfulness aspect and how we manage it and how we see it. But I think if we go back, we, we gotta, we've got to understand more about what that, what that led to those illnesses. So, you know, if, so, if I'm with a patient, I'll probably, and it's sort of sad, I'll probably spend less than a minute on their family history. I'll sort of say, what did your dad die of? Got any brothers and sisters, any illnesses? And just sort of scribble them down. But really, we don't have much uh, understanding about, you know, family history and growing up and exposure and all of those things. We should be spending an hour with every patient or them sitting in front of the computer telling us a bit about what their history are. Then if we can tie that network of information together, and we can then tie it up with the genomics. We get what's called this knowledge network. And then we can seriously start with, with masses of information and, and our understanding now of these computational techniques that we have of, of being able to match what seemed to be rare with um, certain lifestyle or um, uh, changes. We can then do the same thing in people who have good responses to treatment. What's happened to those patient, patients that have the same drug yet they've responded really well, whereas their counterpart hasn't? It's, it's, and I suppose what I identify the barrier that we all have as practitioners is time with our patients, I suppose. I mean, that is the limiting component to some degree. I mean, uh, if we, if there was a situation where maybe that could be in your situation, maybe triage to someone who could handle that whole area and then you handle your area and you put it together, that would be a, a, a way maybe to collect data to say there's these relationships here from a you know personalized sort of perspective or those other components uh, i mean how can we move forward in that particular area because it's 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 there's the there are those barriers aren't there yeah it's it's about time and money and putting the resources together getting the resources and i think that uh you know there has to be there has to be some shift in thinking i think we will get better as we get more electronic medical records and people are putting putting information into into databases that where we can collect um, and we're not having to transcribe everything. And so as we move forward, I think that will be a major step where we've got big, in, where, where people, what, what I put into my computer will be potentially retrievable um, from you know, amongst a whole lot of other people who are doing the same thing as I do. It's already happening in genomic medicine where patients' uh, genetic data is being put into massive databases, de-identified, but massive databases linked to clinical information. We just have to take that a bit further. I, I suppose this is the uh, generation of e-health we're talking about here in, in, in communication. Is that what we're referring well, to? Well, it does come into it. It's really important. I mean, we have to have a good e-health medical record if we are seriously going to put in the masses amount of information that we need to answer some of these really subtle questions. And, for, and from your experiences overseas, are, are we behind in that area? Are, are the US, North America, are they ahead in that particular area in regards that data collection and that ability to transmit information between, say, chiropractors to specialists to etc you know that, that openness is are, are we behind or are we ahead maybe i don't know oh look we're not uh, i wouldn't say we're ahead um i think we're ahead, we're ahead in components uh we're i think the uk for, is one place that's really is trying to push forward into that area where it's 
it's uh, we're not far behind. Uh, some some hospitals have uh, and some institutions have great medical records. So um, if if we don't act soon, though, um, we will drift behind. Maybe we can try and get the MBN and uh, eHealth sorted all in one package, perhaps. You know, interesting. There we go. Now, what are the next challenges in genomics? Do you think? Well, I think it's going to be around cost and delivery. Um, you know, really, the reason we've got to where we are is, you know, the Human Genome Project, which I mentioned before. It's, yep. it's given us the template. We've now got mega computers, so we've got great com- computational capacity. We understand much more about the pathways that make us work in the cells, the chemical pathways, and we've got now things like the synchrotron, which help us in drug development to try and target the potential Achilles heel of these genetic abnormalities. So they're the sort of four things that have pulled it together. And so we are on this roll. It's going to keep moving forward. And it's about speed and time. We need to be able to put out this information quickly. There's no point in having a great molecular test that takes, you know, six weeks to get a diagnosis out. So it's about reducing the costs and making it deli- and be able to make it deliverable. Um, that's the first challenge, and it's happening, and we're getting better at it, and the costs are coming down, just like, you know, just like the costs of a television comes down, these costs come down as well. But probably the biggest thing is that the bio, is the biology in that, you know, some of these mutations and abnormalities that we're seeing in tumours um, are, uh, are not targetable or the tumours get smart and we give them a drug that targets it, that blocks that pathway and it just thinks of another pathway to get around it. So ultimately we are going to, you know, end up giving two to three different drugs that are targeted uh, in, in an attempt to cure it. So we've got the practical issues, but, but ultimately uh, there will be diseases, as you said, that can be managed with our genomic screwdriver in our toolbox um, and others that, we, that will be defeated and become resistant and we'll have to look at, look at other tricks. Do you think the day will come with, with, in light of the, the Genome Project that we will be able to be purely predictive of conditions that we're going to be having in 10, 15, 20 years? Are we going to have an ability to somehow through some sort of sense of technology be coding to say that, you know, we can be pretty confident that this is coming? You, you've got tangles in your 50s that are starting to predict Alzheimer's, that are starting to seed, and we know they're going to take 20 to 30 years to develop, and this is your pathway, and thereby... What can we do to try and prevent that? Is is that foreseeable? I think I think it will be uh, more about risk. I think we'll be able to look at somebody's uh, genetic profile and say this is your probable risk. That's already starting to happen. Um, I think it's uh, it's going to then be uh, adjusting that probable risk with recognizing better things that are influencing. Um, uh, that are then that can then influence the next the next components. So uh, you may well, it may well be you recognise this risk, and therefore if you modify your lifestyle, if you actually are obese or you don't eat enough fish oils or you don't get enough vitamin D, um, then you are, will increase that risk by another X or Y factor. Yeah. Okay. Now that's, well, that would and sort of correlates regards natural health and holistic health and 
all those components in in the sense of our genome. So really, our you know genes and environment working together. Well, you know, it's it it, can, it comes across in so many ways. Um, you, you know, all of the paradoxes. You know, of of the of you know why red wine's good and why exercise is good and why it's been shown to be positive and negative in, in other areas. I think a layer upon that, of course, is just that one thing we can't defeat is just the whole ageing phenomena. Uh, and we're, knowing, we're discovering now that as we age, you know, these uh, stem cells and uh, uh, other aspects really just become, you know, degrade. So I think all of these are going to be critically important for, for things that, that are not so degenerative um, you know, it will be always a challenge to defeat natural degenerative diseases. I mean, you don't have any spare time, Miles, to sort of try and define the find the anti aging pill. I mean, you know, if you could do that as well in your spare time on weekends, maybe. You could... Yeah, well, that's. <laughs> I, I, I just want to. If I can work out something, some way to slow down time, I'll probably be. <laughs> More, more productive. Yeah, no, no, you're very busy. Now, what about breakthrough therapies, breakthroughs in regards to immune therapies? What's happening there? Well, look, there's just a lot happening. I mean, we've always, you know, since the 1800s, we've really known that the immune system's important at suppressing it. And I think, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot of common sense to, to realise that, uh, that, you know, keeping your immune system does keep you healthier. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's the most complex aspect of our body and it's this balance between, you know, if your immune system's overactive, then it attacks, attacks itself. You know, the fundamental principle of the immune system is what's self and what's not. So our natural default position is to have a somewhat suppressed immune system and uh, cancers take advantage of that. So as soon as a cancer starts to grow, the first thing it does is starts to suppress the body's immune system. And when the body's immune system starts to attack it, it counterattacks it. So there's been a number of drugs recently uh, which uh, are counteracting that suppression, so trying to uh, boost the body's immune system. And it's, it's, actually, uh, it's actually taken off um, enormously. I went to a, a, a review of one of the um, recent conferences and uh, – Every uh, there was fifteen presentations reviewing the conference, and every one bar one was about using the immune system to fight cancers. Chemotherapy was being discussed less and less. So the immune system is incredibly powerful. There's gene therapy approaches plus plus a whole lot of new drugs. We've only just started to scratch the surface. But gets back to your earlier point. It's about balancing. If we push it too far. Uh, we could end up with a, with uh, you know to- significant toxicity. So it's not going to suddenly change things overnight. And, and I suppose in simple terms, you know, the immune system is our defence system. So if, the, if I mean, it's got to work optimally against you know one of our biggest enemies. I suppose in, within our body, if the cancer comes along, I mean, it's in in a lay sort of way, I suppose that's how it works in very simple terms. Yeah. Well, look, the, the, the immune system fundamentally, you know, from the time we were. Um, from the time we were jellyfish, um, you know, is about stopping other things attacking us. Mm. And as we've evolved, it's gone from non-specific to very specific. And so, cancer is has been is something that we're attacking. But we always have to go back to the fact that our immune system is there to stop bacteria, virus, parasites, etc. That's its primary aim. 
and it's and it does fighting cancer as a bit of a part time um, uh, part time activity. So um, the and, and you know it's aging is has a lot to do with it as well as how the immune system you know tends to to wind down. So. It is. Um, it's. It's. A, it's going to be a battle for the immune system to do everything in fighting cancer because that's not its natural job. And 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 finally, I suppose um, maybe a non-cancer sort of question. I mean, you, you talked about immune system with your autoimmune system and how our chronic disease, comorbidities, rheumatoid arthritis, all these conditions would be put under the the bracket of autoimmune. I mean, have you got any thoughts there about you know the instance of that increasing? why it is, you know, some of the mechanisms. I mean, there's some sort of gut suggestions now maybe creating a cause that maybe some sort of some parasites are, are perhaps the etiological agents. If you, you know, with your wide reading, what you've got any mm. thoughts there? Well, I think ultimately the way the immune system works is that it's, it, it has to recognise something. Uh, it has to recognise something that's foreign and then it's got to respond to that. It's got to then memorize it, and then re-respond to it. So the, um, the immune system, you know, if you get vaccinated against tetanus, the whole principle is, is that when you stand on that rusty nail and the bacteria comes in, you have a normal response to it. And so you can imagine there's a lot of things that can go wrong in, 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 any, in that sort of process, and then you multiply it looking at all the things that our body's exposed to what the changes and massive changes that happen in our immune system as we go from children, you know, age seven and through puberty, our whole immune system changes enormously during that time. So we have to, I, so if you want my personal view, yeah. I think we have to go back to those very early years and look at what's happening to an evolving immune system. I think there's, there's large genetic components, but, you know, if we're going to, explore issues around exposure um, or the microbiome, what's in our body. Mm. I think looking at what happens to us in our early years is going to, is, is the place to start. Yeah, fascinating. Very, very interesting uh, material. Now, Miles, we'll turn to the part of the podcast here where we ask our talent person we're interviewing about an impacting pivotal experience, something perhaps in your life, be it personal or professional, that's uh, really influenced you. and. Would you mind sharing something with our back chat listeners tonight with this? Yeah, well, look, one of the things that I've become in, involved in recently it has been um, philanthropy and raising money to um, to fund really major changes. One of the problems with research funding in our country is that not enough is done in basic uh, research, or well, not basic, but but in research, looking at fundamental changes and uh, seed funding, uh, also funding young people, young scientists to move into research. And uh, so I've been involved with the, what's in the Snowdome Foundation, which is about bringing new uh, therapies to patients with blood cancers. And we also linked in with the Maddie Rewalt Vision, which is uh, about uh, raising funds for uh, bone marrow failure syndrome. They're both very close and probably... The most exciting thing that happened to me last year was seeing Nick Rewald, who is, uh, you know, captain of St Kilda, um, sitting in the laboratory uh, with the scientists that his, uh, that, that our foundation supported, and you know, looking at this picture in the in the sun in in the in the 
in the um, Sun Herald and seeing there was knowing that there was a huge amount of these people that loved Nick Rewald. They were seeing him in a white coat. Nick had his hand around the the, the scientist that was doing this important life saving research that was there to save the life of of you know people like his sister who'd lost his lives. And so it was it was really linking the whole thing in. What's important to to me is about the science and supporting people. What's important to the readers was to see a role model like him recognizing it as being important too. So you know it was a it was a special moment to see that that link and seeing that you know what we were doing in trying to raise awareness and and funds around this science was was actually working. And and, and it's ongoing by the sounds of it because I mean the St Kilda Richmond game the Maddie game I think they call it is that in is that in related to that as well? Yeah, so that that Maddie's match is, um, but they're spreading their you know their work into looking at how they can uh, uh, support blood cancer, uh, bone marrow failure syndromes, and 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 use Maddie and and, and her fight uh, as inspiration. Yeah, I mean that's that's a fantastic legacy, isn't it? Really, and um, it's very powerful. So, look, thank you so much for sharing that. Now, to finish off the podcast, can you give our listeners from Backchat three take-home messages? Uh, in what you've discussed tonight? Yeah, I'd say that number one is that genomic medicine is is going to profoundly affect the way we manage cancer in the ways that we've discussed. I think every patient with cancer, you know, this is the number two, every patient with cancer will eventually get their tumour barcoded. They'll have that, that test and will know a lot more about their cancer. And that will probably go into other uh, other diseases as well. And thirdly, this will lead us to um, precision medicine, which is ultimately about matching that optimum treatment uh, to that patient's specific disease. Thank you, Miles. We've discussed genomics. We've discussed cancer, autoimmune disease. We've discussed personalised precision, individualised medicine. We've discussed blood cancers. We've discussed your 30-year career briefly and where, where you're up to now to uh, your philanthropy type work with, say, Snowdome. So thank you so much for joining us tonight on Backchat. Pleasure, Paul. Thank you. Excellent. Now, Miles Prince is the Director of Molecular Oncology and Cancer Immunology at Epworth Healthcare. His work leads uh, the field in providing patients with their best opportunity to get access in cutting-edge research in genomic medicine. So for more information, you can check precisionhematology.com.au and regards Snowdome, you can check snowdome.org.au and Professor Prince can be followed on Twitter at milesprince4. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Podcast. All relevant website links of today's podcast will be on our Backchat Podcast Facebook page. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We'll leave you one thought. Be the best of what you do and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. 
Foster Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.